First, I want to thank you so much for your practice. I can feel how for each of us and in the interviews, your efforts are bearing fruit and are such a, a beautiful communication and delight of the own beauty of your heart in feeling moved to make the effort that you have. And I feel so honored to be with you in the environment and midst of your efforts. Thank you. So proud for you, like a mother. <laughs> and then I wanted to start with something that struck me a little more deeply when I said it the other day, which is that sometimes nirvana it feels very far away, like just even the word. It's not a word we usually use unless it's the name of a cafe <laughs> or a type of coffee. And, um, and, but in terms of describing our own experience, you know, how are you? Oh, I'm in Nirvana. I didn't think anyone has ever said that to me. <laughs> And yet, and yet, one of the definitions of nirvana or freedom is just a second without greed, hatred, and delusion. A moment of an experience, whatever it is, a moment of hello, of seeing a bird without a story, feeling a breath as a breath and just that and the knowing of it. A moment of generosity without any tiny, should I bother? Just that expression. That is freedom. That is to say, any moment without greed, hatred, delusion or the branches and leaves of those energies without those is a taste of freedom. And we've all had those. And I, I think I might have described this before. Uh, I was in a marriage for 13 years and um, Like all marriages, there were many ups and downs. And um, uh, let's see, maybe six years into our relationship, I did a three-month retreat at home because a lot of the relationship was navigating how much I went away. And I went away a fair amount because I was teaching as well. And it just always felt too much for my partner to, for me to go on long retreats. So the compromise was that I would retreat at home. And so I went into silence and she went to work. And we didn't eat together. Um, but we, when she came home, we agreed from work. Um, which often happened when I was in the dining room eating and you had to go through the dining room to get to the kitchen. Um, we would acknowledge each other. And there was this moment where I was eating and she came in through the door and stopped and I turned towards her. And there was a moment of pure love. And, and it's so alive in my being and in my memory because of that purity. Just love 
that got expressed and got expressed in that happenstance way, because sometimes I would be loving and she wouldn't be. And sometimes in other times of our relationship, she would be loving and I wouldn't be. You know the scene. It doesn't always coincide exactly. And this time, it did. And it's so alive in me because there was nothing other than that open-hearted, non-verbal greeting of love. And I know that often we have that, but we don't take not but. I'm really trying to drop the buts. We often have experiences and also don't always acknowledge them and the difference between the acknowledgement I'm sharing with you and the many times it might happen, for example, coming home and the cats would sit on the bathroom window shelf right overlooking the cars when we drove into park. And I would notice that as soon as I got out of the car, I would look up and there would be one of the cats, you know, ears perked, tail wagging, you know, standing up to jump down to come to the door to greet us. Something so ordinary and yet, because I wasn't meditating so many of those times, in a way bypassed. And so one of the, um, one of the uh, beautiful practices of this tradition is to really intend to pay attention to moments like this, to acknowledge them and to contemplate them. Because when the Buddha was on his path, he went through many extremes, which in a way is symbolic of our journey as well. So he didn't, like me, drop into a lot of bars and drink alcohol, but he had a thousand women as a harem, which he indulged in when he was a young prince. And he ate according to the deliciousness of the food and so on and so forth. Basically, he went through meeting all his senses as much as you can. And then he went to the other extreme and became very, very ascetic, including whipping himself and um, hardly eating. And he got, as we have on our paths, we kind of get after a while, this is not doing it for me. <laughs> and I, I so clearly had that experience after doing some political work, actually. This is not doing it for me. I don't know what I want, but I want something. And he got to that place too. And he remembered when he was a child, he was sitting under a tree. It was a beautiful summer's day and he was watching some jousting of, of uh, some game with swords. And as he sat in that sort of delightful surrounding, his mind became very calm and very collected and opened, but didn't, but opened sort of into a sense of, of ease and well-being without starving himself, without beating himself, and doing the other ascetic practices. And he remembered it, and it was that remembering that became the inspiration for that. That is my gateway. 
And so he sat under the tree with the deep intention to awaken and remembering the relaxation and the collectedness. And then, and then the, the practice of, of uh, both continuing to collect and to being aware and mindful. So, marking, marking these uh, experiences can play a really important role, both in terms of supporting us when we're in doubt, but more importantly than that, communicating to us our capacity wherever we are in the Dharma, to open and to experience already a mind that is purified and free. And that it doesn't have to be this very great special, I'm jumping off from the seven factors of enlightenment into, into the unconditioned, as some kind of mystical experience. It's very, can be very ordinary in that sense. Because all these teachings are centered around this capacity. And um, it's said in that poem that I have often read, but not tonight, written by Thomas Merton, if you could only see the beauty you really are, the miracle you are, you would have no choice but to kneel down, kiss your feet and other beings' feet. And when I contemplate that poem, then I'm thinking that's what makes us the miracle and the beauty that we are. This capacity for healing and for transforming so that more and more life is experienced without the hindrances without delusion and ignorance. And doesn't it make sense then that those experiences, because they're pure, they connect us to what's considered the sacred, which really is the expression of nature and life without greed, hatred, and delusion, right? Those movements that are genuine in their open, natural expression of love or generosity or compassion or caring or patience or truthfulness or any of the other beautiful qualities. So, um, Ruth Dennison, my teacher, used to say to me, you want to experience the sacred? Put on the kettle, knowing you're putting on the kettle. Lay a nice embroidered napkin down on the table. Put mindfully your two sauces and cups. Fill up a little, um, uh, what's the word? Pitcher with milk, or she used to do half and half. Put a saucer of two chocolates <laughs> in between the two cups. Invite one of your Dharma friends and enjoy a cup of tea in silence with chocolate. That's sacred. If you're being Delighted, enjoy, and mindful, you have created a sacred community of two. Mm -hmm.
And I've practiced that practice of the secret many times. <laughs> and my friend Rhea, who some of you know, who was too sick to come um, this time round, that's how we got to be friends. Because we would drive back from the retreat center to San Francisco. I lived in Albion, so I would stop there for the night. And she would say, let's have tea. And we'd do that. Mm -hmm. We'd do that, and we'd especially the chocolate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. That was just pure delight. So, um, bringing, bringing the teachings into our ordinary realm and the third noble truth. So, this possibility of experiencing life without the distortions of greed, hatred, and delusion. In terms of the first stage of awakening, the, um, the structural change around that is that there's no doubt about the efficacy of the path. We just know the path works, the Stama path works, and that it, it works in liberating us from the confines of the self, and we've talked about that already. So then I wanted to name um, the uh, Eightfold Path it, within the context of the Four Noble Truths for people who are new to the Dharma. So there is this um, first Dharma talk the Buddha gave after his awakening and it's called Turning the Wheel. Turning the Wheel of acknowledging and naming suffering, the cause of suffering, the path, the ending of suffering, and the path towards the ending. So last night, we were naming, right? We were naming the hindrances and how they might be obstructions, and then building a framework of how to understand these energies in the context of oppression and trauma. So building a framework, and that's what the Buddha was doing. He was building a framework to give to so that we can place ourselves on the map and at any point when we come from forgetting to remembering, saying, oh, I know where I am. Like, in an interview, someone was mentioning, often I forget where I am. Well, that's certainly true. I don't know about you, but it's certainly true for me. I'll come out of, like, especially a movie or a dinner or a Dharma talk where I get very absorbed. And then, I, um, this happened to me recently in Palm Springs, I teach at the Palm Springs Sangha, and I come out and I'm like, which way do I go? I have absolutely no idea, I'm like totally confused. So there's that kind of knowing our location, but I don't worry so much because there's a more important location to know and remember, and that is the location and the map of the Four Noble Truths. Where am I in relationship to that? And so, we have talked quite a lot about what is it that actually constitutes suffering, clinging, but really I don't want to just name it, and neither does the Buddha in a lot of suttas, actually, it is the nature of life to be constituted in such a way 
that it can never fulfill our desires, that inherently in the nature of this life, that is one map to remember, one location to remember. There is nothing about our relationships, our body, this world, um, movies, beauty, art, nothing that it actually can satisfy us forever. And because it can't, at some point something is going to end. So there's an incredible liberation, isn't there, in beginning to know this map so well that we expect less and less from the conditions of it, of our bodies, of our relationships, of our personalities. Oh my goodness, nothing about our personalities can bring satisfaction. Nothing, <laughs> we know that. Those of us who've lived for, right, 60, 70, even 26 years, mm -hmm. our youngest member, 26 years, we're already suspicious of of the <laughs> culture that thinks that we can change our personalities through improvement so that we'll have lasting satisfaction. <laughs> it's, it's very liberating to know that part of the map, that the way the world is constituted, there is no place where it's going to be endlessly smooth and endlessly fitting in and groovy. And <laughs> so that's the first noble truth, which is, you know, which, which is lovely. And then the second noble truth acknowledges that we are not fully awakened, so there is clinging and greed, and that clinging and greed is going to operate and going to want what's pleasant and avoid what's unpleasant. That's a great map and we've been exploring that today. And to know that that is not ever going to bring us freedom and well-being, lasting well-being. And then there's the third map, which is there is living inside of us this calling to freedom. That for whatever reason, each one of us here has been blessed with enough of a strong voice to listen to it, which is why we're here. Everyone has it, but not everyone has the capacity to listen to it. And for whatever reason we have, how beautiful. We could say past karma, but that doesn't really explain it either. So, and then the, there's the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path is the practice that supports building this intuition into uh, a realization. Now, it's really fascinating that uh, then what the path is, at least for me, the first step of that path. So there are eight steps called right, but not right as in good, but right as in effective, right understanding, right thought. right action, right speech, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness and right concentration, those are the links. <coughs> here's, here's a way that the Buddha says we get to um, continue to build our map is through understanding, right understanding. And the first thing that he says is 
there is truth to what is given. That means that generosity is real and, and is important and needs to be practiced. I, I think that's so fascinating to me that in the very beginning of right understanding, the Buddha would talk about generosity. Don't think it's just a social convention. Don't just do it because it, um, that's something you're supposed to do. But understand that generosity is an important practice for the liberation of the heart and mind. That it has a real impact on us and on the community that we're part of. And of because, now I understand it, but I didn't before, why did the Buddha set it up that the ordained community couldn't cook for themselves and they couldn't grow their own vegetables? Because it seems ridiculous when you could be self-sufficient not to be. It meant they relied on the generosity of the community and in return gave the Dharma and their practice freely. The whole, this whole practice and the continuation of the lineage rested on generosity. That's, isn't that amazing? Ruby talked about Eric talking about this money, this is sacred money, it's not capitalist money. Speaking to how deep and profound it is that the fundamental um, um, expression of this practice is generosity of freely giving and freely receiving. I think that's so beautiful. And that's what the Buddha says in the very beginning of the um, first link of the Eightfold Path. And then the second, which I didn't like for a long time, is there is a mother and a father. And what he's speaking to is, you came into this life because of the sperm of your father and because through your mother's body. And no matter how awful, he doesn't say this, I'm saying this, your parents <laughs> might have been as parents. There is a tremendous generosity, especially for the woman, in giving birth and bringing you into life. And that's important to acknowledge. In the same way as we deepen in the practice, we feel the reverence to our teachers for supporting us to open our hearts and to reflect back to us our beauty. In the same way we have reverence for our teachers, the Buddha says we need to have that same appreciation for the beings that helped manifest and bring us into the world. So, that's the second thing out of everything he says. That feels so fascinating to me. But I understand it in the sense, in terms of finding my place in the map again, that I, my map is through my parents. Without them, I wouldn't be here. My location is there, right? There's something about finding our home through that. So, of course, it's taken me 70 years to get there, but now I understand it. So, and then the next thing the Buddha says about right understanding is that there are consequences to our actions. And I love that. I love that. It's not linear. The 
consequences aren't always a di directly expressed often in action, but there are always consequences. That is to say there is a law of karma. And that means for every intention that is acted on, there is always a consequence. And given that, the Buddha said, what is important for us to know as leaders of liberation is the ethical consideration in that action. That is to say, is the intention and the action wholesome or is it unwholesome? Or is it neutral? So, for example, it's neutral if for you're walking on a path and you don't see an ant and you step on it, that is a neutral action. There's no moral consequence for that. But if you're walking on the path and you see the ant and you don't care about the ant, that not caring is consequential and it will bear fruit for you. When we continually don't care, we've talked about that, the heart gets more and more shut down and we get more increasingly divorced from our bodies and from love and wisdom. And so later on in the Eightfold Path, what right action means is to refrain from harming. And we took the precepts at the beginning of the retreat because it is impossible to harm and also to be mindful and caring. And this is where I make the distinction between paying attention and being mindful. Because I could be planning a murder and pay a lot of attention, <laughs> but the outcome is negative. So it's not mindfulness, because mindfulness is a wholesome, is, is not neutral. It is actually wholesome. It is ethical in its constituency because it understands in its mindfulness what is harmful and what isn't. And, and so that's why it's able to guide us. So when we keep acting out harmfully, um, it, it, for those of us who have in our lives, at some point we hit a, a crisis, a deep crisis, a moral crisis, and it's sometimes close to life and death, where we're like, if I keep on like this, I'm going to die. And it's so clear to me, then, these teachings, that perpetuating harm divorces us more and more from discernment and love. And so, um, this practice of paying, of, of um, uh, paying attention with this intention to care, supporting mindfulness, supporting attention, attention to transform into mindfulness, makes it more difficult to harm. Don't you think that? Mm. Yeah? Yeah. So, wow, isn't that amazing? That's so beautiful. How the practice is protecting us. Every intention we have to return in our meditation, every intention we have to be generous, even if we're not feeling generous. Just, may I? I can't love you now, I can't be generous now, I can't be patient now, I can't be um, uh, truthful now, but may I? I know that intention is bringing me back onto the path and on the map of the Dharma again. 
So the law of karma is the place where we have choice in our lives. And it is really, in the Tibetan tradition, it's considered more important than being mindful, understanding the law of karma. Because if you don't understand it, then you can't use it. And if you can't use it, then we feel disempowered all the time. So even around the, the whole political situation right now, sometimes there's this feeling of, oh, I'm overpowered, and I can't do anything. It's just so bad and so pervasive. And I'll notice that unwholesome energy, it's not exactly sloth and torpor, it's a combination of aversion, fear, sloth and torpor, just that kind of depression, that heaviness, and mindfulness will, will know it. And I'll say to myself, I don't know sometimes exactly how to hold this, but I want to. And then I remember, oh, I have to drop the storyline, which is very seductive, and just feel the feeling. Oh, this is heavy kind of depression, which I felt when I was a teenager a lot. And I'm like, I know this feeling. Oh, depression, okay. Hi. You know, hi, I want you to know I care about you. I don't always say that, but it is the energy of it. And then it's like, oh, I understand how to hold it. In holding my own forgetting and harming and care, caring for it now, I can hold everyone else's too. No difference. It's like, oh, I get to hold it in love, just like I hold mine in love. And moment after moment, just in the same way that my own being has been transformed, karma works for culture too, moment after moment. Because that is the law of karma. And it's social as well as individual. And it's like, okay. So the law of karma is so beautiful, and it is part of right understanding. Um, and then um, there's uh, uh, two, two others. How are you doing? Yeah, go keep going for a little bit more. Mm -hmm. This last part's a little more com uh, complex, but I'll give it anyway, and if you want to, if it just washes over you, that's fine. And then the Buddha talks about clinging to the five aggregates. So, not last night, but that morning, yesterday morning, I talked about selfing. And so the question is, if there's no self, what am I? And the Buddha said, you're the five aggregates, that's what you are. There's no self, you're the five aggregates. And the five, do you know what the five aggregates are? It's, what are they? Body. Physicality, more Physical. than body. Okay. Physicality. Physicality. Um, feelings. Yes. Perception. Yes. Uh, mental Comic formations. And contrast. Yes. Right. Did you get that? Okay. Very good, Jean. Okay. So physicality and feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Perception. Comic, formation, comic formations or the mental... Um, uh, constructions of feelings and stories that become a tangle and consciousness. So, if we're not a self, an abiding self, 
then what we actually are are like bubbles coming up from emptiness from the bottom of the ocean bubbles coming up and each bubble is a moment of consciousness and in each moment of consciousness are particular constituents and in every moment some are variable and some are constant and the ones that are constant are contact that is the capacity of the six sense bases to make contact with inner or outer world so contact with an object and that's happening all the time it's like one of the most subtle forms of a of suffering is considered the fact that we have no choice but there's contact happening all the time with one of the sense bases and then there is feeling as the after contact feeling the flavor of pleasant unpleasant or neutral and then there's perception then there's volition or intention and then there's a basic attention that allows that allows you to not know with mindfulness but to know in that very general way that happens in every moment of consciousness and then are either wholesome or unwholesome energies so if they're unwholesome they always have if you have a moment of irritation which you may be guessed I did this morning with people coming in and out of the meditation hall so apologies <coughs> if I was a little irritated there's always ignorance which means there's always confusion in the mind there's always agitation that means that the mind can't settle and perceive clearly there's always a sense of not feeling ashamed at doing wrong <coughs> that has two qualities there's shamelessness and um, the, uh, another fearlessness. one fearlessness yes like fearlessness exactly yes and so they're always there when we're judging something or being irritated or angry or in addiction and then comes greed aversion the five hindrances conceit and revenge the clinging aversion sloth torpor agitation doubt those are the five hindrances when there isn't a moment of mindfulness then there's always this happening there's a type of confusion in the mind no fear of doing wrong and one of those energies aversion fear criticism shaming blaming confusion splitting the scene fantasy all those revenge conceit pride haughtiness in other suttas the buddha gives other examples it's really kind of amazing to be truthful about ourselves isn't it not to have any delusion about what's happening in our mind when we're not mindful it's just that when we're not mindful we don't understand it and perceive it clearly because we're not mindful because ignorance and confusion and wrong view are always in the mind that's why it's good to have good friends in the dharma who can help us Irina come over here can I share something with you oh thank you for letting me know I was deluded I didn't realize <laughs> on the wholesome side there's always faith which is the the energy in the mind to clear the mind of confusion that sees that perceives the path and begins to to 
move in, uh, and manifest the path. So it's like faith is the leader that crosses the river to the other shore. The Abhidharma definition is it's the hand that grasps the profitable. What? The profitable, the hand that grasps the profitable. When you have faith, and I don't mean faith in a person or faith in a thing, the Buddha says faith in what's wholesome, in the practice. That faith is the very first part, uh, um, um, energy in creating the conditions for mindfulness to actually arise. And in every wholesome moment there's always faith in mindfulness and the fear of doing harm and right view. They're, all, they're always all together. So just like when there's ignorance there's all those that come together, when there's wholesome, they all come together too. Mindfulness, faith. And so, that, that, the Buddha takes feeling, perception, and the physicality of the body, feeling, perception, mental formations, all the ignorance and the constructions of the mind and its capacity to be free and consciousness and says that's what you are. That these are the constituent parts of what you are. And that might be enough for one Dharma talk. <laughs> that's a lot already and maybe I can continue tomorrow and go in more detail because it's said that really understanding the aggregates and freeing ourselves from the aggregates is the single biggest place where we need to practice renunciation. Mm -hmm. So maybe that'll be tomorrow's Dharma talk. Mm -hmm. So then let me, um, let me read this um, moment. Which one should I read? Because I can't read both. This one. This is from. Um, what can I remember? Oh no. Philip Simmons, who died, who, who since died of Lou Gehrig's disease, who, he um, he used to write. He was a Unitarian Universalist, and he wrote articles in the UU magazine and he wrote some really exquisite stuff and my English teacher would die if I said stuff. He wrote beautifully <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and uh, so and had um, you know many in his dying process many moments of opening without greed, hatred, and delusion, and this is one of them. One day my wife and I drove into Boston to meet with my doctors at the hospital. I wasn't supposed to enjoy the day, but as it turned out I did. On the drive down I took in the brilliant fall colors against the blue sky. And I especially liked the chance to get out in my wheelchair in the city, rolling up and down the narrow streets of Beacon Hill. These days when I'm out in the city streets, I have the extra pleasure of being greeted warmly by drunkards and the homeless. I suspect that the wheelchair catches their eye and I'm simply a spectacle, a change from the usual passerby. But I also sense they recognize me as kin and I find myself happy to be welcomed thus into the family of the marginal. As my wife and I waited at one intersection for the light to change, a man staggered towards us through four lanes of traffic. 
He was a sight himself with his shirt half unbuttoned and twisted sideways, his badly shaven head and bulbous red nose. He stopped short of reaching us, standing well out into the busy street and stared. He pointed a finger at the side of his head, making a disbelieving, am I crazy gesture, and then said, are you guys all right? I assured him I was. Then I suggested he get out of the street so he would be too. At other times in my life, such a man would have had my defenses up. More recently, it seems, I've had less to lose, and so instead could find myself moved to discover that no matter the illness and suffering of his own life, this man at this moment was concerned for my welfare. You see, we really are all in this together. There are times when the fact that we inhabit different bodies or have lived in different centuries or that some of us have died while others live on or are yet to be born seems a trivial difference compared to what unites us and abides. Our journey takes us to suffering and sorrow, but there is a way through suffering to something like redemption, something like joy, to that larger version of ourselves that lives outside of time. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for your listening.